and welcome to the Ashley Webster Experience. Thanks for listening in this uh, week. Of course, we do it every two weeks, but I'll say yeah. this week alongside Brian Solomon and our special guest today, Elizabeth <laughs> McDonald. We call her Lizzie. We call her Emac. <laughs> we also call her really smart. She, of course, <laughs> is the host of the Evening Edit on Fox Business Network at 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. But she's done oh so much more, and we'll get into that. But uh, Lizzie, welcome, and thanks for being here. Oh, I love being with you, Ash. You're great. Well, it's the Ashley Webster experience, and you've been a big part of my experience at Fox <laughs> Business Network. We um, we spent many a year sitting next to each other on the Varney Show. And um, laughing. And laughing and making funnier sides. And we were like the two old guys in the, the Muppet Show in the balcony, right? You're Waldorf, right? I, I'll be Waldorf, yeah. yeah. We're the entertainment hub of Varney. We right? are indeed. Yeah. The but peanut now gallery. you've got on to bigger <laughs> Better things. Well, I don't know about yeah, <laughs> I'd say peanut gallery. Anyway, Lizzie, thanks so much for being. Sure. You've got such a great story. I, and I was talking to to Brian, and I said, you know, Lizzie is like one of the original New York families. You oh, grew yeah. up on Long Island. Yeah, you have a, a family of firefighters. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like growing up in Long Island? And for someone like me who you know, obviously grew up somewhere else. I'm always fascinated about being out on Long Island. How often did you come into the city? Was that a big trip yeah, for you we, as a kid? We did come into the city. It's a beach community. It's Nassau County. It's Rockville Center. Mm. It's uh, 45 minutes outside of New York City. Um, but we'd also go right to the beach. That's how we lived our lives. And, you know, it was, it was fun. It was a big family. Um, you know, I have uh, seven brothers and sisters, uh, who I love very much. Um, my mother never knew her father because he was hit with mustard gas in World War I. Oh, my. But she was raised by the chief. And I always thought, who's the chief? And we we're always talking about fires and history. So my great-grandfather, as you thankfully, gratefully pointed yeah. out, he did run the New York City Fire Department at the turn of the 20th century. He, uh, his name is Thomas... Doherty, I uh, have often given out a medal in his name. They give out 100 medals at right, the right. fire department annual medal ceremony. Anyway, so let me back up. He um, worked on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, wow. the Sherry Netherlander oh, fire, wow. the General Slocum, which was the 9-11 of its day. Right. Uh, major fires. He worked to change fire laws and labor laws. He wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. He brought into the United States the staircase vault because he always said the fire escape will kill you. He's written. He was dean of the fire college, wow. and I just recently found out that um, my sister told me that he, you know uh, he was best friends with the Roebling family, mm. which built the Brooklyn Bridge, and he worked with Daniel Burnham and did the Flatiron. So I always said to Regina, I thought Roebling was a brand. Sister. My sister, I said, Roebling is that a brand? She said, No, it's a dishes. It's like the gifts that they gave for weddings and birthdays. And I said, She's going to get mad. I said, Can I have some of that? She said, No. <laughs> <laughs> So there was a lot of history there. And yeah. I'm not – we are – we we're unsentimental. Um, when you're raised in a fireman family, it's a way of life. You're not supposed to really talk about it at all. Um, and it's it's sort of – it's uh, what are you going to do? That's what we always say to each yeah. other. Oh, what are you going to do? And right? you mentioned 9-11 and I'm sure you – that affected your family very much as well. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, my sister married a fireman two days before 9-11 and a bunch of those guys are gone including his – uh, my brother-in-law's brother-in-law, uh, Chuck uh. Uh, Mendez, who was uh, dug out that New Year's Eve when nine firemen, you know, the, the velocity and the power of the 9-11 pushed the lobby down about three stories. So it took a long time right? to dig it out. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine in the dark and the dust, they started yeah. seeing blinking lights. And when a fireman is down, it will set off a blinking light mm-hmm. so you can find them in the darkness. So they found nine bodies and then one of them was Chuck. So gratefully... 
um, that was that was a wonderful thing to have that closure. Well, uh, listen, I, the fascinating thing about me with you, Emac, is that um, you're such a brain box. Now, <laughs> did this come did this come out at an early age? I mean, were you like a whiz kid in the now, in the classroom? I wonder. You know, it's a. I always wonder. I am geeky, but and you're absolutely right. I'm like totally geeky and nerdy. Um, I think I don't know. I had spinal meningism when I was five, so I like to go. I like to go way up in my head. And I read a lot of books, right. a lot of books when I was um, in the hospital and afterward. And, you know, I, did, I didn't do very well as a kid, you know, with my health. So I just like to read a lot. So that's what I was doing. And you also like to write a lot. You, yeah. you've, you've worked for what? You've worked for the journal, the Wall Street Journal. You've, <laughs> where you've worked for Forbes. I mean, these are very, very well-respected publications. Um, and then you make the transition to television. How was that? I know. That's a great point. So... You know, I always thought I had a face for radio. I would joke. But anyway, I know, I know. <laughs> That's what Ashley says about me. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. So I covered the IRS starting in the 80s when no one else was covering the IRS. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to make my rookie greenhorn amateur mistakes as a reporter covering a beat no one wanted. Mm. And it was the IRS. And I ended up doing a lot of coverage and testified twice for Congress about IRS reform because it was only me and I think one other reporter who quit. And didn't cover them. So, you know, I've broken a lot of stories about the IRS. I wrote a lot. And, uh, you know, it, I was on Forbes on Fox. And um, then, you know, I was called in by Fox News to do that and then to do Fox Business. And I didn't expect to get the job. I didn't even hand in my resume. Frankly. Was it was it daunting for you? You you'd spent so much time doing that, you know, in-depth reporting. And yeah. then in television, it's the complete opposite. Everything has to be done within seconds. Exactly. You know, a two-minute interview is a really long time. And Ash, you probably noticed it too. It makes you a better mm. writer. It yes. makes you with clarity and it makes you funnel it down and and think uh, more clearly and get right to the subject. And you don't – no tangents, which are irritating. Uh, no prevarications, no parentheticals. Just hit it and hit it hard. Well, you, you said to a friend of mine – once, but I don't know if you remember this, that was in college. You said, if you have interest in going to television, write. Write for the yeah. web, write for print, because yeah. that will make you a better on-air personality. Yeah, and you know, I always say um, not everybody can be a, a an engineer or a teacher or, you know, uh, but a lot of people try to be journalists. And so mm -hmm. I've been through a lot of different editors starting in the 80s. And, you know, it's sort of a hazing. I had Jim Michaels, who broke the news about Gandhi's assassination um, when he was working for United Press International. He was the editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine. And it was withering. You wanted to be edited by him, but he was, <laughs> oh, lacerating. But then you, yeah. He would say, go clean that fish, or that's a real room emptier. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. and so you guys, boy, that made you sit up and, you know. And then at Money Magazine, they put out an errors report every month with your name and your the oh error and broadcast it through the whole um, company and uh, through the uh, business, excuse me, the journalism side. Yeah. Wall Street Journal, if you had a number of errors, you're going to be fired. If you had two or three errors, you're, you're gone. You had to fact check your own stories. Ouch. So it was a hazing, and Ash has been through it too. And, you know, yeah. you've seen it with 
But, you know, when you hold on to somebody, we love to work with an editor, whomever, or a producer, you hold on to them tight. You do. Right? Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I learned writing, writing for radio, which I think is the greatest thing in the world because yeah. it has to be very concise, clear, colorful, conversational, all of the C's. Um, but you also have to describe something for someone who's listening. You have to paint the picture with words. And yeah. I always thought, you know, well, obviously with television, you have the video to help do that. But, uh, you know, it's, never, it's not easy. I always remember in college taking a big story and then whittle it down to a 15 yeah second piece of copy it's right. difficult to do it's like the you know the term is you know put a beer keg into a perfume bottle but then you have to make it fun and vivid yeah right so yeah. you know and ash and i are ash is a whiz, a no. genius at that but i like you know to say i don't know if it's irritating but i you know if i if for example if elizabeth warren is going to go down to wall street today you'd be like jumping into a pool of live hair dryers or <laughs> getting her to love capitalism is yeah. like trying to teach a cat to bark. You know what I mean? So trying to make it yeah. you're right, Ashley. You've got to paint the picture with words. You have to illustrate it. You do. And I, I find it carries over into my normal life outside of the, the studio. I, I, <laughs> if I'm talking to someone who's a little long-winded, I have this horrible habit of get to the point, get rap. to the point. But you love <laughs> yes, rap. rap. Zip it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we're really saying. <laughs> we have a heart out right now. <laughs> exactly. Can you shut but, that pie but anyway, right now. <laughs> we live in a weird world, let's put it that way. Um, talking of weird worlds, I wanted to get your take on the political atmosphere in this country. Um, it's so divisive. It's yeah. so angry. It's so violent at times that if you have one opinion, other people will try and shout you down yeah. and prevent you from even thinking that. People have lost friends. Families are split. You know, people say, well, we had this, uh, you know, the towards in 68 with the Nixon administration and Vietnam and so on. But I really for me personally, I've been in the country more than 30 years now. I have never seen anything like this. Yeah. And it's a great point you make, because, Mm. you know, when you when you back up and you look broad zoom, what's been going on in this country? And I think it really started in the 80s with the appointment of special counsels. Mm. When we started to go to the special counsel era, you see the control of Congress whipsaw rapidly between control of the different parties. Mm. So before that, you'd have the Democrats running Congress for years and years and years or Republicans. And then in, starting in the 80s to now, it would rocket back and forth. It would gyrate back and forth. And then when you throw in the mix Twitter, you know, uh, social media, it's combustible and right. it becomes a tinderbox. It's changed everything, has it yeah. not? And so, yes, it has. And and I worry about the loss of local journalism. Mm. I worry about the loss of local newspapers who are not just the checks and balances on their local governments, but different points of view. And they are. And what's happening is you don't see the moderates. I'm worrying that because of the polarization, because of the loss of local newspapers, that you're not seeing the moderates in the Republican Party. You're not seeing certainly the moderates in the Democrat Party. You're absolutely right. And and the word, a compromise is a dirty word. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. You're either right or you're wrong. Right. There's no gray shade. And I have to say it is Facebook who has yeah. helped demolish local newspapers, right? Because they've sure. taken a lot of that content, did not pay for the overhead to pay yep. for this, that journalism. And so, and yeah. they got all the mm-hmm. ad revenue yeah. for it as well. And yeah. they want to increase their news division. Yeah. But I don't know how they do that. You right. know, I don't know how they try to create their own news division while not taking away from the individual's voice. And I don't believe them ever when they say, oh, it's the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. who, who writes the algorithm, right? People right. do, right? right? Well, and, you know, politicians now, I mean, we have a president who uses social media very effectively, uses Twitter. And we've said this since the day one. He, he goes over the heads of the mainstream media and just talks to his base directly. Yeah. And we've never seen anything like we've that. We've never seen anything like that. And that's why... 
despite all the problems, uh, you know, mm. the the fact that his base so loves him is just for that. Ashley, you're right. It's his it's his clarity, and he speaks right to the people. He's speaking with them, not at them. We saw that when you and I covered President Barack Obama. It was always talking at people, yeah. not with them. He'd give lectures. That, lectures. You know, it was ten like, minute answers. Yeah, we were in his academic study hall with him <laughs> for eight years. And it was irritating and it was tiring and the people knew it. And he, you know, it felt like they were lectured at and talked down to the president when he does, when he talks with you. You know, I know that he makes a lot of mistakes. I know he makes a lot of errors. I know uh, the issues with him and the problems and the controversies, certainly over Ukraine. But he has a powerful connection with, he does. with people. And that's interesting because do you have pushback in your own personal life, family and friends where they say, how can you, you know, we work for Fox Business. Um, but you just put Fox in there and people immediately say you're, a, you know, a, a crazed conservative right winger who believes that Donald Trump can't do anything wrong. And that's not true. We call it as we see it. Yeah. But does that affect your life outside? Well, well, the way I see it is when that I hear that, I'll say, is this your parents, Democrat Party? It's not even, you know, I mean, it's really gone over the edge. I mean, we're old. Yeah. We're old New Yorkers. You know what I mean? We've seen, you know. Governments come and go, and and this is this is the we've never seen Democrats so vociferously against what made America great. Yeah, and it's interesting, and and we bring this up too. But it's no coincidence, is it not, that you have L.A., San Francisco, New York. These are areas with very high taxes, uh, where okay, social programs are supposed to be. Uh, uh, funded on a greater level because that's the role of the Democrat governments in place. And yet these are the cities that people are trying to get away from in droves. Right. And then what happens is you have, because they lost, you have the Democrats, you know, blaming things like the Electoral College, which makes me crazy because the founding fathers electrifying vision for the country was basically minority states, Mm -hmm. right, should have a say too. And that's what underpins the U.S. civil rights system, right? It's, right. And so that was – and that's the genius of the Founding Fathers. And for the Democrats not to see that and to try to push for a mobocracy where you have L.A. or New York and the big tax and regulation you know, gr- crowds running mm-hmm. what the elections should be, it's patently and breathtakingly absurd. I think – Though that the Democrats that have been elected on the smaller scale, the non-general elections, in between the coasts, like we saw in Kentucky, right? Mm-hmm. This Democrat won on issues that people cared about in on a local level. If he ran on these big socialist ideas that we're seeing on the on yeah. the presidential right. camp on the presidential race, Warren and Sanders, the Warrens, or even what's happening in New York with Cuomo and De Blasio, mm-hmm. or in San Francisco, he would have got he would have got massacred. I don't think this guy would have won. And you know what bothers me is Elizabeth Warren sort of – how does she not have a plan for how it's going? How much her plans are going to cost? Yeah. It's sort of like this, well, whatever hand wave, like, oh, I'll get to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to read my plan after – you know, you got to pass it before you see what's in it Did kind of attitude. Did you see the S- SNL sketch? Yes, it was, yes, it was it's fabulous. Just pretend. Oh, it's yeah. just pretend. pretend. Numbers. And, yeah. I, you know, really – let me back up. Because I covered the IRS for a long, long time, for years and years – 
you have a big government, you need a big tax collector mm-hmm. to pay for it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I talked to the IRS officials. I've sat down with them. I went into their workspaces. I've driven in cars with them, hung out at parties with them. They do not like to be pulled. They don't like being pulled into politics. Mm-hmm. They're not some denatured, aclinical thing like a sewing machine that'll get the revenue for you. They're populated by human beings that have to right. carry out the laws that they that you know the neuro- the neurotic fiddling of the tax code of Democrats like Elizabeth Warren makes IRS officials berserk. And let me get your opinion on this impeachment process. I mean, are the Democrats gaining ground, or is there something there? Well, I mean, what's they, your take on this? Well, they, they haven't really made the sold made the made the sale. Made the case. Made yeah, with the American people. It's, mm. And now they're going to try with the public hearings coming next week. Um, you know, it, what laws did he break? Federal election laws. Um, you know, it's, I, I just I, I keep watching the polls and what the American people yeah. are, are feeling about it. You know, when you know, we've always said in, in an election year, it's August 20, August, right before the election. Right. When people sit up and take notice. I think thanks this Thanksgiving, people are going to start way earlier <laughs> yeah. to take up. And I can notice. also just say this about the impeachment. Yeah. You know, with the publicity fight that. This is this really is. But you always have, you know, the fight in the courtroom or in these hearings and outside. Right. Yeah. If you have a big smoking gun, you don't wait to show it. Right. You want to put it out in front and show everyone, hey, look, we got him and we're going to prove it. So if they haven't, whatever they have. So if they haven't seen it now, you're never going to see it. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Uh, Yes. And I wanted to uh, while we have Emac here. Um, and this is fascinating because it's taken you to Europe and everything else. But I want to talk to you about your book. Oh, yeah. And the reason – well, first of all, give me the title of the book. It's Skirting Heresy, The Life and Times of Marjorie Kemp. All right. So to people listening, who is Marjorie Kemp? So Marjorie Kemp is the first autobiographer in the, thought to be in the English language. She lived during what's thought to be England's darkest and most violent period. It's Catholic mm-hmm. England before Joan 1960s. of Arc. 1960s. Yeah. Yeah, right. no. <laughs> when you were born. <laughs> when I was born, yes. <laughs> it's Catholic England before Joan of Arc was executed. So this is the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. Uh-huh. This, these are the unsung heroes who reformed Catholicism a century before Martin Luther and Henry VIII. How did you come up with this? Well, you know, I was, again, in my geekiness, I was just <laughs> reading a lot. And I, and I read Julian Adorich, who I love, who's an uh, English mystic, and across her doorstep comes Marjorie. And I was like, who's Marjorie? So I started studying uh, the period, studying Marjorie. I've been studying her for about, and the period for like about 20, 25 years. And I thought, well, there, there's a book in here. Yeah. I never knew about these English men and women who were uh, basically burned alive uh, for opposing Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth and the Catholic Church at that time, these are the people who, whose common sense rings like a bell. There's, they are the ones who reformed Catholicism. Well, and they're s- the unsung heroes. So I feel like they they deserve their due. And you gave it to them, and, and you touched a nerve because uh, a group in England. Um, actually took your book and made a play out of it. Yes, and you they did. went to England. Yeah. This was last year, was it not? Yes, it was. And how did that go? It was wonderful. So it was performed in the church that um, the first martyr of the Protestant Reformation, the first person burned alive, uh, William Sautry, he's a Catholic priest. He was Marjorie's parish priest. It was in St. Margaret's in King's Lynn, which was at, back at that time called Bishop's Lynn, and, you know, Bishop's Lynn was burned in a fire, of course. Uh, I love that story. I love yeah. talking about that, but that happened in 1420. So it went well. It was a packed church. Uh, one of the Knights of the Garter showed up. Um, you know, but, you know, it's a complicated story. What was it, what was it story. like to make a—okay, it's a complicated story, but you 
were fascinated by this story. You write a book, and next thing you know, you're in England watching people perform what your book was yeah, about. That must, have been, that must have been a really fabulous feeling. I walked back to the hotel, and I thought, that was really pretty cool to have yeah. them say the line. So, you know, things like, and again, the quintessential exquisite logic of the English people just rings through. So what was happening at that time, people, the Catholic Church was saying, if you say that Jesus is not the Eucharistic bread, if you say he is not the bread, you will be burned alive. Oh. So that's what was happening. And so the British people, English people were saying, well, Jesus also said he's a cup of wine. I'd like to worship a cup of wine. They were saying, I see more of the image of my my wife in the Eucharistic bread than, than Jesus. <laughs> you know, and then they were saying, because Marjorie was always crying for Jesus, they were saying, Marjorie, why are you crying so much? Even his own mother never cried as much as you are. <laughs> we should have left you in the bottom, in the middle of the harbor, harbor of a bottomless boat. Uh, and, you know, Marjorie was annoying. She was an irritating character. She was a businesswoman, and she would fight with the statue if she could. But, you know, I, th- I thought the whole thing was really entertaining and funny. It's Geoffrey Chaucer's period as Jeffrey, well. Geoffrey, oh, fabulous. Oh, I love. And very quickly, you're also going to be heading back over there, yeah. this time to Wales. That's right. I've got to go to Wales. Proud. In Home January, my father. Uh, in January in Wales, so make sure you've got you know lots of waterproof clothing. That's all I'm going to tell you. Right for be... a medieval conference, a me- oh, with a hundred academics. So. That's so cool. Oh my god, in Swansea, right? <laughs> Swansea University, <laughs> right? Light a candle for me, pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do with that. You yes, are Swansea fascin- University. <laughs> I hope the people who are listening just get a sense of uh, Elizabeth McDonald. She's everything. She's fascinating, oh. has such a rich life outside of the <laughs> studio, and yet mm-hmm. here she is. She has a terrific show. Thank you, Ashley. A That's fabulous nice. partner and colleague for me on Varney. Please come back as often as you can. Um, and thank you so much for being here. Love being here. Great to see you, Ash. All right. Thank you, everybody, okay. too, for joining us. We'll see you back here next time.